Thank you so much and welcome again to Bible study tonight. Um, we will attempt to wrap up um, um, John's letters. We've finished 1st John. So tonight we'll try to wrap up 2nd and 3rd John. So can you help us read the first six verses of 2nd John? Verse 1 to 6. Okay, so 2nd John from verse 1 to 6. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace and mercy, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandments from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Okay, thank you so much, Sami. Um, so this is a very short letter. Um, there are only 13 verses in this first one. So a bit of background will be helpful um, in this letter as we move forward, right? So the, um, the letter is written by the elder, and so that is John. Um, so we know from this introduction that John is writing this letter at a time when he was quite stricken in age, when he was literally elderly in age. And that being the case, we know that as the last surviving apostle, this letter was written around the time when all the other apostles of Christ had been martyred. So in many ways, he was a church father, not just spiritually, but practically. He was the father of the church. He was still the one who had the connection, if you like, to where Christianity all started. He was still very much a reference point for what is true and what is not, okay? So he's writing this letter to a woman who, who is um, the head of a house church, as we're going to see subsequently. So this is the only letter in the New Testament that is addressed to a woman, but the presence of this letter is sufficient proof to show that um, women could lead churches, right? And that is important for all the other topics that, that come up along those lines, but also important because the reason why it was very easy for a woman to lead a church is that the church met in people's homes, right? So in many ways, the, the ability of a church to form was down to the ability of someone to open their home, to have the resources and the capacity to open their home and to be able to serve people and take care of them and i think that in many ways this is still the way that the church forms itself right and this is the first thing that this woman's life shows us this woman's life shows us how love is the foundation for building a church right so the very simple act of opening her home to people and inviting them was what um, enabled a church right to form and not just a church, but a church that had children. 
and by children is meant children in the faith, not the woman's biological children. So because she had opened her home to people, it was easy for them having experienced her hospitality to, to accept her faith and her belief system. Now, this background is necessary because as we're going to see, the reason John is writing this letter is because this woman was not a theologian, right? She she didn't have the best command of scriptures, if you if you like. Um, she didn't know all the verses by heart. Yet God was using her powerfully because she had that that very significant element of love. And that's a very important thing for us to note, right? That many times when we think about evangelism, right, and what it takes to propagate the gospel. We often think about it in terms of saying something. When we start the book of First Thessalonians, hopefully next week, you're going to see that the gospel is not first of all spoken out. It is first of all lived out. And then the speaking of the gospel confirms the life, um, cons confirms the life that has been put on display. So many people around you are not necessarily seeking an argument. Right. And that's why if you've tried it before, which I've tried many times, you find out that you can win many arguments, intellectual arguments about Christianity, about the origin of the world, about the meaning of life, the destiny of life. You can have very articulate answers to the very tough questions of existence. But none of those things is sufficient to draw a person into a lifelong commitment to Jesus. Many times. The, the the thing that eventually draws people to Christ is a living example of who Jesus is. And it's not possible for us to put up that living example if we don't have the basic element of love. And so even today, if there is any woman, right, who can as much as open up their heart, because again, Second John is written to a woman and in summary, the problem that she had was that she had so much love, but very little truth, right? And third John is written to a man. And the problem he had was that he had so much truth and very little love. And in many ways, this characterizes the differences between men and women, right? That women have um, a capacity to love in a way that is much more broad and deeper than men do. Um, we Like... Of course, this is just a generalization, right? There are obviously overlaps everywhere. But in general, men tend to be more cold and analytical, right? Men men are more likely to think in abstract terms. But women are usually more, more practical, more, more driven by, by the thing they can relate to, much more relational. Right. So I've read from one of the from one commentator that this is part of the reason, right? Why it's usually easy for a man to claim to be in love with many women than for a woman to claim the same thing, right? Because the man has a way of rationally um separating his thoughts from his feelings so that <laughs> um he's able to in a way accommodate uh, multiple feelings. For multiple people in a way that the woman most of the time just cannot accommodate and this this shows us beautifully the 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 design of god right because the bible says that he made us 
in his image, but the image of God is comprised of male and female. There is a natural openness, right? There is a natural tendency to believe all things, to, to be accepting, to be, to be willing to connect, to be down to earth, to be practical, to engage with the, with the practical need-based side of life that is in women built in by God. And there's a natural tendency to engage in the more analytical, hypothetical, abstract sense of life. So that men can often are often more driven by, let's say, a vision of the church, right? A big vision of the church or a big goal. And women can be consumed by the practical needs of the church. It affects them much more than it affects the average man. These are issues of wiring. And we see these issues come to the forefront in this letter. So um, this woman was is is a very direct manifestation of the natural tendency there is in every woman to to love and accept right um and it is important the love that god has placed in our heart like we've said is a necessary aspect of our witness and even though this woman didn't know many scriptures i don't even know how many hours for which she spent praying but the very fact that she allowed the love of god in her heart to grow large had given her access to a church, right? And to children in the church. Well, like we said, if you notice in this letter, in the introduction, John is trying to already emphasize the balance, right? He says, whom I love in truth. Not only I, but all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us. Right, grace and grace, mercy and peace will be with you from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Right, so you can see why John is very deliberate about balancing in truth with in love. We're going to see practically the problem in from verse seven onward. But what I want us to maybe grapple with a, a little bit is. Um, this balance, right, of truth and love. Why, why are why are both of them essential essential in our dealings with God? Right. This is the first question I have for us to maybe think about, based on what you know about your salvation, about Scripture. Why is a firm balance between truth and love necessary? Because, like we've said, in a in a ministry that is driven by women, there is likely to be a lot of compassion, right? And this compassion can lead to a de-emphasis on truth, right? And on accepting everything. In a ministry, on the other hand, that is driven by men, there is likely to be an overemphasis on truth to the, to the expense of love, which is what we'll see in Third John when we get there, right? So, why are these two important, right? Why are they necessary in our dealings with God? Some people want to emphasize truth over love. Other people want to emphasize love over truth. It's almost as though there's a tension between these two, but why are they necessary? When you don't see the truth in love, it tends to drive people away. So there needs to be a balance between truth and love to be able to bring people more to God because 
it's the truth you know that sets you free. But if it's not, if you don't hear it sometimes in love, you really cannot get it. Mm -hmm. but, but that's the thing, right? That, that's a very good answer. But what is it about us, about people that makes it impossible for us to engage with truth if it doesn't come with love? You know what I mean? Like, why is it necessary? Okay, now you've given us the answer from a human perspective, right? But from the con from the context of our salvation, why are those two things indispensable, actually? Okay, I think in terms of love, um, without love, I don't think um, God would accept Christ in the first place. Like, we can't accept salvation, first of all, without love. Mm -hmm. But it's in the love of Christ that we now get to know the truth of Christ. I don't know if that makes sense. Okay. Yes, I, I see I see your point. It's through the love of God that we are able to embrace the truth that is in Christ. Right? Thank you, Gola. Well, from a gospel perspective, the, the reality of it is that because of the fall, because of sin, all of us are in need of mercy. It's impossible for us to live up to the standard that God expects of us by ourselves. That's what Romans chapter 3 means when it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If all you present to us is truth, right? You have only succeeded in setting a standard before us that we can never meet. And you have succeeded in making us miserable. So one of two things will happen. We are either going to revolt against the truth, right? We are going to try to hide ourselves from the truth because that's what Adam and Eve did when they saw God the first time. That's our natural instinct, an instinct for shame. And that shame can lead us to some kind of confrontation with the truth, right? To deny the truth or to change the truth even. <clears throat> there is a brokenness in creation. There's a brokenness in each person that necessitates the ministry of love and mercy. And if you do not recognize that brokenness, you will you will you can use truth to 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 cause more harm than good. Right? You can use truth in quote to place a burden on people, right? That will be too much for them to carry. And of course, people there are different ways people react to conflict, right? Some people fight. <laughs> that is, they are happy to confront you. Some people freeze. That is, they just, they are incapacitated. I don't know if you've heard a powerful, mighty sermon, but as great as the sermon was, it left you frozen, right? You could not go back. You could not go forward. You were just frozen in time. Well, the sermon was awesome, but it didn't really lead you to where God was expecting you to go, which is that God was expecting you to take positive action. So some people freeze, right, in the face of of their of their limitations. And some people just flee, just run away from the whole thing, you know, and try to avoid it. And you see, all of us respond in one of those ways or the other. Well, let's look at the scripture, what the scripture says about it. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Bible says that, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And the thing that Jesus was full of, when we say the glory of Christ, the glory of the Son of God, the content of that glory was grace and truth. And then verse 16 says, and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. We don't have time for this scripture, but you can see here 
that grace is in layers, is in measures. Then verse 17, which is where I'm going, says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So in this context, grace is the antidote to the demands of the law. The demands of the law represents the absolute holy character of God, right? And then it became obvious through the experiment with Israel that even the threat of curses that were well enumerated in the book of Deuteronomy from chapter 28 upwards, the threat of bitter curses was not enough to guarantee compliance to the law because it's not so much that the law itself was wrong, it's that you and I have become broken inside. So, so much so that it's impossible for us to relate to God. It's impossible for us to deal with God without the provision of grace. Okay. If you look, if you read earlier in the book of John, um, verse 10 of chapter 1, for example, it says that he was in the world, Jesus came to the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him or recognize him. So things are so disjointed, are so disconnected from their original state that even when the creator was on earth, you and I could not recognize him. Remember that all the years that Jesus worked, worked with his disciples, they didn't really know who he was. And even when Peter revealed that this is the Christ, the Son of God, he only said it by revelation. It was not a knowledge that was his personal possession. Because when the time came, right, when that knowledge was put to test in the arrest of Jesus, Peter denied him three times. And you, I sometimes ask myself, how is it possible that someone walks with Jesus? that closely and does not discern him does not know that this is jesus it's, it's just like us how you can pray for hours and not discern the presence of jesus or not discern his counsel discern his will how is it possible the only way it's possible is because we have become so disconnected from the glory by which we're supposed to live which is the glory of the son of god from the glory by which we were made, we've fallen short of that glory. So when we when we encounter the absolute love of God, it's not natural that we can relate to it. Or when we encounter the absolute holiness of God, it's not natural that we can relate to it. And so even the very basic demands of the law, because Jesus summarized the demands of the law in those two 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 commands right you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your mind with all your strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself so this was all that the law was asking you and i to do and we couldn't that's how fallen we are i'm saying this to say that in our dealings with people we need the ministry of mercy and that is what the grace of jesus or of god comes to do through christ Right, It is like the grace of God, first of all, we've always said this, right, that there are many layers to grace. The first layer of grace is that it is the kindness of God towards us. It's the benevolence of God that gives us access to him by faith. Is that God has made a provision for us to be able to access him without the problem of our fallenness, right, being a hindrance. That's the first level of the grace of God. But you see, the grace of God also then becomes the empowerment of God. God working in us, with us, through us, 
to produce the virtues, the qualities of his life. And that's why grace becomes a governing system in our life. And so Romans chapter 6 says that sin shall not have dominion over you because you are no longer under the law. The law is no longer your governor, but you have a different governor. So the grace of God can so train a man or a woman, can so educate a man or a woman that it, it provides a governing system that keeps them abreast with the law. So that even though they are not actively trying to look to, to keep the law, just by subscribing to the grace of God, they find that they are keeping the law. And that's why we've always said, friends, that usually it is a graceless Christian that ends up in sin. And it doesn't matter how, how many activities, how full your calendar is with spiritual activities or religious activities. Whenever it is that sin overpowers you consciously, not unconsciously, but consciously, it is because grace is lacking. And if grace is lacking, it's an invitation to fellowship with the Father. It's an invitation into communion with the Father, a communion where you listen to the Father. Okay? I wanted to show us um, the basis of grace and truth, right? In the, in the Old Testament prophecy about the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So this is the covenant upon which you and I stand, right? This is a covenant upon this is the agreement this is the contract this is god's commitment that's how to think about the word covenant so he says i will put my law in their minds i will write it on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the lord for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So this is the grace aspect of the covenant. That the reason anything is possible in the covenant, the reason you have access, the reason we're talking about prayer at the beginning, right? How we bring everything to the center of the atonement of Christ through prayer. The reason all of that is possible, the reason the greater works that Jesus promised is possible through prayer is because God has found a way to deal with our sin. There is none of us that can stand on the basis of our righteousness. See, I don't know if you've done this experiment before, right? But maybe one day you think you, you, you have the, the best or holiest day that you can have, right? Let's just put it like this. I know that this is a bit ridiculous, but let's just put it like this to relate with us, right? You have the holiest day you can have. Like what? I mean, you, you don't remember any, <laughs> any thoughts even that was 
that was selfish or that was ambitious or that was proud or that was lustful, even a thought you don't remember, you had a perfect day. Do you realize that if at the end of that day you stood before God, that the holiness of God would have made that your holiness look very filthy? I, I, I encourage you to try it out, you know. Come one day before God on the grounds of your righteousness and just say, let's let's do a comparison. You'll find that even your best intentions are tainted with a little bit of self, tainted with a little bit of the fall. And even if there is no aspect of the fall in you, you have, you and I are practically limited, right? By that, I mean that you are not all-knowing, Right? So it means that certain things that you did that to the best of your knowledge are right, <laughs> they're still wrong because you don't know enough to know that they're right. So when you now stand in front of the one that knows all things, that if it takes any step, that step is absolutely right. That there is no edge case. There is no um, condition that he has not evaluated. That if he as much as says something, that thing he said, he has considered all the possibilities and this is the best possible. Absolutely holy. When you stand before him, you will be afraid, I promise you. It's in that moment that you will plead for a righteousness that is not yours. Because you will see the futility of attempting to be justified before such a personality. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 16 that my goodness, my goodness is nothing apart from you. My excellence is nothing apart from you. So this is the basis upon which the new covenant stands. And that is why you will find that in the new covenant, the ministry of mercy, whether it means forgiving one another, having mercy to a brother, receiving strangers, hospitality, or it in any shade or color the ministry of mercy takes, whether it is giving arms to the poor or, you know, whatever shade or color it takes, you'll find that the ministry of mercy is a fundamental ministry in the New Testament because the basis of our salvation is mercy. But you see, grace or mercy or love is the foundation, right? It's the foundation. The thing that God wants to build on that foundation is truth. Because like God has said, it's ultimately the truth that will set you free. So that any labor we do in a person's life that is all grace and no truth, is eventually going to hurt them. Because it's, it's not going to bring them to the fullness of what God has for them. At the very best, it's going to keep them amateur, right? But at the worst, it's going to distract them or potentially turn them away from the truth. In fact, it could make them enemies of the truth if all they have received is a love or a grace that's not based on truth. Because you can see that God's end goal here is, I want everyone to know me, to recognize me. <clears throat> and you see, that's the ministry of truth. <clears throat> that's the ministry of truth. Truth is the ability to recognize Jesus. Truth is the ability of the Holy Spirit to bear witness about a thing. He can bear witness about your life and tell you that you are a son of God. He can bear witness about heaven and tell you that right now in heaven, there is silence. And so you also need to be quiet. 
truth is the ability of the Holy Spirit to bear witness about a thing. And it is only as we grow in our understanding of that ability that we can know God. If God is saying be quiet and you are talking, you will not know God. Yes. It is only as you are in sync with the life of God that you can know God. Because sometimes you can only know God in the silence. And that is the experience that Elijah had, right? When he trekked to Horeb, the mountain of God, that all the signs that we will say that, okay, these signs are God. God was not in any of them, but God was in the whisper. And it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that furnishes truth in our hearts, that lets us know the position of God, the position of heaven, so that we can come into alignment, so that any ministry that only emphasizes love but does not bring us into the knowledge of the truth is actually a danger to us in its honest efforts if it continues on that track. So that's what John means, right? In John chapter 1, verse 17, when he says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth. This is the antidote, friends, for the law. This is the antidote for the demands of the law, that God supplies grace, and he, sub and he supplies the ministry of his spirit to guide you into truth. One of the best things that we can do to believers and for ourselves is to teach us how to receive the witness of the spirit. Whether it is in prayer or it is in the word, how to receive the witness of the spirit. If you can receive the witness of the spirit about your life if for every season, about your career, about your ministry, about your family, about every step, your life will reflect the same glory that Jesus reflected. Because the Bible says that we beheld his glory and the content of that glory was grace and truth. Okay, it took me a while to explain the grace and truth dichotomy, but I think it was worth it because it will help us move further as we go along okay john writes i rejoice greatly that i found some of your children walking in truth all right so the fact that they were able to walk in truth was the seal of their faith as we received commandment from the father and now i plead with you lady not as though i wrote a new commandment to you but that which we have had from the beginning that we love one another now, isn't it interesting that for a woman that is known and famed among the apostles and loved among the apostles for her love, right? Her hospitality, her large heart, her generosity, her willingness to embrace all. John is reminding her of the Lord's commandment. He says, I want to remind you of God's commandment that you love one another. And then he clarifies for her what love is, right? He says in verse 6, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Now, because we've covered this a lot of times, I, I want to ask us again to refresh our memory. Why is love defined as walking in his commandments? Why is it not defined as an emotional acceptance of people? right? Or, yeah, why is it not defined like we often define it from an emotional or external gesture or feeling towards people? Why is it defined 
from the practical perspective of walking in his commandments. This is a test to know how many people remember our studies of 1 John chapter 4 and 1 John chapter 3. John says, this is love. I want to remind you of what love is. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So, uh, if I mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, walking symbolizes something that has to do with effort. Uh, I think I've observed that in the New Testament, the Bible always refers to, like, say, sit, walk, stand. And one thing I found that whenever the word walk, walk is mentioned, it has to do with some level of conscious participation. You know, something that, because in this context, walking according to his commandments, it, it, it goes to show that it's something that will that has to be done nonetheless, even in the most unpleasant situation. It's not, it doesn't always warrant comfort. So I'm, I'm trying to paint a very um, analogical. Mm -hmm. uh, so if he says sit according to his commandments, it's more is a different thing. It's like sit usually signifies rest. Okay. But when it comes to walking, walking has to mean that there is, um, I, would, I, would, I don't want to say effort. Let me say participation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because remember, we are walking with him. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's participation. And this participation, it will be, it will require us to be involved, even when it's not convenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Sami. You know, a great theologian once said that grace is not opposed to effort, right? But grace is opposed to earning, right? God does not invite us to earn our acceptance before him, but he releases grace to the effect that we can labor in a particular direction. So, so your point is quite valid. That love is is an active verb and not a passive noun, especially when it comes to loving God, right? That there is an active decision that needs to be taken, that I'm not supposed to follow God according to my feelings, right? But rather, I'm supposed to direct my feelings towards God, right? God is not in a sign. God is not in a feeling, right? God is not in an atmosphere. But God is God, <laughs> regardless of my feeling, regardless of the atmosphere, regardless of whether there is a sign or a miracle in the environment. So I'm supposed to direct my heart towards God. You know, for example, if you only wanted to pray when you feel like praying, right? Maybe I should ask you, how many percent of the time will you pray? If you only wanted to pray when you feel like praying, <laughs> especially if you are... In, in the in the west and it's and winter is coming slowly upon us and the and the morning hours are becoming cold and dark you know um you you can be in, in the bed by 7 a.m and you think that it's, it's 3 a.m and nothing in you wants to stand up right a passive definition of love will say just go with the flow but go with the flow is never the attitude that God wants for us as Christians. We need to direct our affections towards God. Right? 
Love is a decision that we make every day. I always give the example of a mother and a child, right? The mother may not know what it means to wake up at 6 a.m. and may not even like it. But the moment the child arrives, the mother can wake up at 4, right? It doesn't matter that it is inconvenient, right? It is, it is the choice of love, right, that sometimes allows that inconvenience, okay? Thank you, Sami. Any other thoughts about this? There's something I'm seeking for. Something that we touched upon when we talked about perfect love, right? Anybody remembers? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Why? Well, the well, the standout revelation of First John chapter 4 is that God is love, right? And we said that that means that God is the reference point for love. We had, we had to take our definition of love from God, right? And because of the issue of our fallenness, right, that makes us need grace, humanity has become so disconnected from what love is. We think we know what love is. But you see, even our acts of love are tainted with selfishness. That's why Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your to your children. Because you you read that statement and you might think, but when I give gifts to my children, I'm actually being good. <laughs> but Jesus said that even that action of giving gifts to your children, it, it, it has been distorted badly. Many things have come into play that even you may not be aware of that influence such an action that that might that you might even be oblivious of, right? So we cannot define love outside of God. He is love. He is not like love. He is love. Love is not God. So it's not everything that we do and call it love that we say is God. But God is love, right? So he's the reference point for love. And that is why John tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that in this, the love of God was manifested. And then he began to talk about the atonement, the death of Jesus on the cross. There is no human in their rational thinking that will look at the bloodiness of the cross. The son of God humiliated on the cross, bleeding to death and call it love. Well, you see, we cannot judge what love is because we are not God. But you see, in God's bed's eye view, in God's perspective, in God's justice system, love does not exist outside of the boundaries of justice. Right? Remember, we said that there are two, at least two standard qualities of love, right? In First John chapter 4, we looked at the diversity of love and we looked at the boundaries of love. That love by its very nature, according to how God defines it, has boundaries. And it is those boundaries that makes love healthy, right? Love without boundaries is no longer love. It is infatuation, it is lust, it is jealousy, it is anything that can destroy. And part of the boundaries of the love of God and part of the boundaries of love is justice. So that in God's books, it was love that made his son hang on the cross. He said, this is love that God gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So if I say that I love God, the only way I can walk faithfully to that confession is by taking my instructions from God. Because even though I want to embrace everybody, the love of God in me can tell me to stay far from this person. 
am I staying far from this person? It's actually an act of love. There are some people that need to be left alone in order for God to deal with them. My insistence on not leaving them alone is preventing justice and I'm unknowingly setting myself against God. You know, there was a time when Jeremiah wanted to pray because Jeremiah was tired of negative prophecies. It's as though every time the spirit of the Lord came upon him or the Lord was just upset with Israel. And so it was like, can I just intercede for these people? God said, no, this is not the time to intercede for them. Because if you intercede for them, you are going to stop justice from happening. So it is the love of God many times for justice to happen. So the love of God can lead us to disconnect. If the instruction is from the Lord. So the love of God does not embrace everything at any cost. No. That's very important. As we consider the next verses below. So that our reference from, for love comes from God. And that is why the love of God will press you. If you know the love of God in your organic personal experience. The love of God will press you to speak the truth. Because you cannot say you love God and yet you don't speak the truth. Because if you're taking your reference of love from God, he will, he will press your heart and say, this thing this person is doing is not good. And normally, I want you to keep quiet, but, but go and talk, go and say something. And the person will listen to you. You know, that's very difficult because if you've ever gone to correct somebody before, or gone to not even correct somebody, just express truth that see the, what you did hurt me. I cannot, I don't want to hide it. What you said really hurt me. You know that there are many hindrances to, to such an activity. One of them is your pride or one of them is your sense of self-preservation. What if the person hates me or rejects me or, or dislikes me? But you see, it's the love of God that will humble your heart and make you, even at the cost of rejection, to go and faithfully say, say, oh God, this thing you did is not good. And then to accept whatever cost will come with it. It's only in such radical love that God has the freedom to do what he wants. Yes. So you can see that the love, that love for God cannot be separated from obedience to God. Love for God does not mean that we accept every preacher and everything that every preacher says. But love for God means that we are faithful to the truth. Because once we lose touch of the truth, we practically also lose touch of the love of God. You know, I was asking us when we did that study of 1 John chapter 4, how do you know that God loves you? How do you know? You see, there are many experiential dimensions, right, of that truth that God loves you. But fundamentally, right, if you, underneath the experiential layers, there is the truth of the word of God. The first way you know that God loves you is that it is captured in the self-revelation of God that he loves you. And you may think, but that is self-evident. Well, if you go to some of our African tribes, right? Like my tribe, where twins were killed, you realize that the human intellect by itself cannot arrive at the conclusion that God is love. And even if it does, it does not know the right way to respond. Because if we know that God is love, then why will we kill twins, right? Just because they are twins. 
So it had to take the self-revelation of God captured in his word for us to begin to adjust our orientation. Oh, God is love. And then on the basis of that self-revelation, on the basis of that utterance, on the basis of that captured word of God, we can then come into the experiential dimensions of that love. Do you see? That we cannot hold on to love outside of truth. And so that's important context for us to understand the warning that John gives to the church here. So can you read for us then, Sammy, from verse 7 to verse 13? Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. <clears throat> he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Amen. Isn't this beautiful? I hope to speak to you face to face that your joy may be full. This is a digression, but there is something about believers meeting face to face that that feels us like nothing else. Thank God for online. And we've seen the power of God move in these our meetings, especially recently. <laughs> but that face-to-face -face encounter of believers, that if you like body-to-body -body contact, whether it's by handshake or by hug or by just being in the same room and doing life together, nothing can replace it. Anyway, I think the storyline is a bit obvious to us now, right? That this woman in her magnanimity Right? She was receiving all preachers, including the ones that denied that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So now, the important context to note here is that this is the first century, and by that we mean the first hundred years, right after Christ. And um, the gifts of the Spirit had been poured out into the church. So at this point, there were teachers, pastors, evangelists, apostles, prophets. So you know that by definition... Um, the calling of an apostle or an evangelist or even a prophet is not a it's not necessarily a stationary calling right the way the anointing works by definition in those who are truly called into the office is that it it works in a traveling mode they are they are literally graced to go from place to place and to to bring the word of the lord to set fire in places and every local church is supposed to have that balance, right? That in the local church, there's supposed to be pastors and teachers who are focused on caring and grounding the church in truth. And every now and then, they are, they are traveling apostles, prophets, evangelists who come to bring the now word of God and to solidify what has been happening. This is the pattern. The, the mistake that often happens is when one becomes greater than the other. Right When churches do not have any base 
and their entire ministry is based on the ministry of traveling preachers, right? Or when, on the other hand, a ministry is all about building themselves and there is no external input from other voices in the body of Christ that can speak to them. In any one of those extremes, there's going to be lopsided development of the church and the church is going to cut itself off from the from a an aspect of the richness that God has for it. Right? So we also need to examine ourselves. How much of my life is grounded in the locality where God has planted me? And how much of it is based on traveling ministry? The only balanced version of your life is the one that holds both in a good balance. Anyway, that's a digression. In the story here, um there are a lot of traveling preachers, right? That were going from place to place preaching. And um, in those days, those traveling preachers could not be put in a hotel, right? Because primarily because most of what you might call hotels in those days, which were inns, called inns, were also brothels. So except if you're looking for an escapade at night, you wouldn't put a traveling preacher in an inn or a brothel. And most of the churches didn't even have the money to afford such. So every traveling preacher depended on the hospitality of the church in people's homes to welcome them, to give them whatever they need, to take care of them and to send them on on their journey. And they were not naturally people who came and stayed, right? Like we said, the oil, the grace of the apostle, the evangelist, the prophet, doesn't by necessity even allow them to stay in a particular location if they are accurate with God. And so some of the older church writings will say things like, if a prophet stays with you more than three days, then it's false. You know, that was just a way to say that, to emphasize the fact that these ministries were literally traveling ministries. So hospitality was an important aspect of New Testament life, even as it still is today. But you see, Hospitality can become a burden, right? Which is what we're going to see in Third John. But in this woman's case, the love in her heart was extended towards every traveling preacher, including those who practically denied that Jesus was the Christ. And I can imagine that in her defense, she would point to the fact that God is love, right? That even if you think these people are bad people, if we welcome them and we give them food and we give them drink, right that we are doing a service that god can use <laughs> to change their hearts but that's why i spent all of that time giving that context and that background right that we don't define love for god right we don't choose who we want to be hospitable to and then ask god to bless it rather we take our definition of love from god and so john the apostle is reminding her right that many deceivers have gone out into the world. And like we saw when we looked at First Peter, I think, so rather Second Peter chapter 2, we said that the way Satan sows deception, in fact, the way he deceived Eve in particular, was by subtlety. Satan did not invade fully with the end game. He came privately, like Peter puts it, subtly. Right? And that is the... That is the reason why the New Testament is so intense against false teaching wherever it appears because its origin is corrupted. It doesn't matter how beautiful it appears on the outside. If it denies Christ, and you see, denying Christ here is not necessarily, 
even though this is what some of the Gnostics of that day were, were, were saying in their theology, right, that Christ couldn't be God in the flesh. They were saying that, but you see, someone doesn't necessarily have to say that to deny Christ. Someone can live their lives in such a way that they deny that Christ was God in the flesh. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul calls such people enemies of the cross, right? And he explains to us who these enemies are. So anybody that denies the righteousness that is by faith and insists, for example, that there are certain aspects of the works of the law that can complete your faith, complete your righteousness, such as circumcision, which was something that plagued the first century church. This person is an enemy of the cross. Likewise, is anyone who denies, who places pleasure above purpose, right? Who denies the need to, to give up self, to take up the cross, to crucify the flesh, to turn our backs on the world and insist that there is some kind of synchronization that can happen between both. It's an enemy of the cross. The person does not realize the meaning of the cross and the absolute division the cross brings between light and darkness. Likewise, is anybody who denies the suffering of the servants of Christ, which these are some of the strands of, of denials of Christ, of antichrist behavior that were apparent in the days of the apostles, right? That several people were pointing to the sufferings of the apostles as signs of disfavor against God. Such posture, such position is tantamount to a denial of Christ. And so John is saying to the woman, don't welcome them. Because if you welcome them into your church, into this little thing that God has used your that God has used your love and your benevolence to build, then you are partaking of their iniquity and you are going to fall short of your full reward. Wow. What a shame, friends, that you and I fall short of our full reward, not because of something we did, but because of something we accommodated. Because of a truth we were not willing to, to face up to. Because of a falsehood we were not willing to honestly confront in our lives. And you see, the reward here is not money or anything material. The reward that God has for everyone who serves him is the glory of God. That there's a measure of glory that God has for you and I, right? That can fill us and satisfy us much more than anything else can. That it is possible that our lives can fall short of the fullness of that reward and that glory just because we accommodate falsehood. And so I imagine that in response to this letter, what this woman would have done, right? And what the apostle would want us to do is to place a premium on the word of God. You now we said at the beginning, before we started the Bible study, that prayer is the greater work, that everything we do should lead us to pray more and to pray better. And in case we are doing something that prevents us from praying more and praying better, it doesn't matter how good that thing is, we are wrong, right? The fuel for such a prayer life is supposed to be the word of God. If we despise the word of God, we have absolutely no recourse for the ministry of truth to prosper. Because there are many things the Holy Spirit wants to say to you that your mind cannot fathom. 
There are many visions that you can see in the spirits that you'll be convinced that you know what the vision means and you begin to prophesy or you begin to act or talk based on the dream of vision. Hmm. It's only the word of God that can instruct you because the word of God provides us the boundaries of how God acts. So that even if you see a dream that contradicts the word of God, let your dream be a lie. Let the word of God be true. And that is the hope that John has for us, that as part of our fellowshipping, we will not just be people who pray, but we will be people who bury our faces in the word of God until there is transformation. We'll behold until we are changed. Yes, yes. He's, he's inviting us to read the word of God prayerfully, to hold on to it prayerfully until there is a change, until there is a transformation. Any thoughts here? So actually, this is like another letter. I don't think this will be too relevant, but this is another letter and another apostle pointing out two explicit sets of people we should have nothing to do with. Um, in Paul's letter, he said we should have nothing to do with people who are arrogant and drunkards and sexually immoral. So we should not even eat with them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, mm -hmm. so we see the apostle John is saying, we will welcome these people into our house. So I've always had this, um, I'm, I'm trying to say this in the light of what we're talking about earlier, talking about truth and love. So my question is, um, at, okay. Sorry. How how was the best way to act to handle these people, especially? Because you see, one of the challenges we have in the body of Christ today is that people say a lot of error, especially in this in this line from verse seven to verse nine. We see big names, big people. They just they hit this thing. Some of them are consistent in it. Some of them hit it in and out like Nepal, you know. Forgive me, those who do not know what Nepa is, but the thing is, is how can we now balance this? Because we now live in an era where if you if you try to do what this scripture is saying, they will say you are judging, you know, or they will say you are you are you are yeah. the anointed or the anointing or some all these things. Yeah. yeah, so please. Help. Yeah, I understand the question. Thank you, Sammy. So First of all, this is a first century church, right? So the equivalent of don't invite them to your house, right? Is essentially don't give them the microphone in your church, right? Because they, like we said, the church didn't have buildings at that time. So they met in people's houses. And in this woman's magnanimity, she was, if somebody came and the person said they're a preacher, she gave them the floor to preach whatever they wanted to preach, right? Even when their preaching contradicted the preaching of the apostles, um, in the name of love, she accepted them. Right? And John was highlighting the danger. So if we want to translate this to our modern times, what he's simply saying is that don't give such people a microphone. Anybody with whom you have doubts about the origin, the source of their theology, of their power, don't give them a microphone. Don't be so much in a... Because what I see in Nigeria now is that because somebody is popular, we know that if we invite the person, 
we too will become a popular even if it's for one week you know so we are it's almost like churches are in a hurry to to plaster different faces on their posters and i've actually heard of of cases where it is purely just a publicity thing even when they know that the minister is not coming for example but they but the picture of the minister on their posters um, is almost like a trophy itself for the church almost like a form of record almost like a form of recognition um so that's the first part so he's saying don't give them mic right the second part is how do we address falsehood in the body right and this is something that um i think we need to be very careful about very and it's very important because in the body of christ god has called and anointed certain people right to be able to point out falsehood and those people need to do it from a platform where they can be seen and heard so if you listen to those people you might think that oh they're just fighting everybody you know they hate everybody they are acting holier than thou but their anointing is what is speaking and this is not something that i can explain to you fully until you maybe try to do what they do right you realize that you can fall sick just by doing what they do it takes something beyond you to withstand falsehood publicly like they do because you see as a minister you have your private life with god right and you have your spirit your 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 your, your public life of ministry if you do something in your public life that disrupts your private life with god right then you have lost you have all men the most miserable so that if you stand and you are rebuking and you are correcting, but that your action <laughs> dislocates you in the private secret place of your dealings with God, it's just a a way of you to know that what you did was not sanctioned. You were not called to do it. The primary way to deal with falsehood, the primary way to deal with falsehood is to build truth. Right? Of course, in these churches, sometimes someone can make an honest mistake, right? You have someone who you invited honestly into your circle because, you know, the person spoke up a good game and you thought, okay, the person may even have told you we are from Apostle John, you know? And then at the end of the thing, you realize that what the person thought is outside of scripture. You see, you don't need to attack the person at the end of the day, attack their personality, because if you do that, your your hearers, your listeners will be focused on your attack and will be dissecting your attack much more than they are focused on truth. <laughs> what you're supposed to do after they're finished is to come in faithfulness, even though you know that the preacher may hate you afterwards, and open the word of God and teach the truth and point out the truth, right? And I find that a lot of times, most people are more eager to correct right, than they are to actually teach the truth. The strongest weapon against deception is the truth. But that does not mean that God does not call and anoint people and give them a platform to address deception from a bigger stage. There are certain people that are called specifically for that, and God gives them an equipment for it. And I tell you, those people are not many. Right, And it's important that when we see those people operating in that office, that we discern that this is what they are doing. And God is using what they are doing 
to achieve his objectives in the body. It's important for us to discern that. But we should not make the mistake to think that all of us are supposed to now be like that. Right? Our primary weapon against deception is our love for the truth. Right? And our ability to establish truth. So if some people are going about teaching a false grace doctrine, you know, some people are called to name them. Right? And a lot of people, not only in Nigeria, have done it, have written books completely that have debunked the entire hyper-grace movement. And it, you, and when you read those books, you see that, Kai, there's an anointing here. But you see, not everybody in the body of Christ can read those books or is even interested in the, in the debate. So our task is to say, okay, what is the accurate scriptural presentation of grace? And to ground the believers in it. Right, and then truth has its own discernment capacity that it brings into our lives. Sammy, did I address your question? Oh yes, very well, Josh. Thank you. I think I really appreciate the part that says that uh, because we, we, you know, we, get, we can get carried away, and the part that says that the biggest. Um, defense is teaching truth. So I thank you so much for that. Yeah, you're welcome. So, if you bear with me, can we just read the third letter of John so we can wrap it up today? We'll just read it. As we, as we read it, you just notice that the letter is the complete opposite of the second one. So, the first one is written to a woman who loved so much to the point that it affected her ability, right, to walk in truth. And the third letter is about a man <laughs> who walked in truth so much that he forgot about love completely. And both were wrong. So can you read just the whole letter for us, Sami? Third John. Okay. Third John from verse 1. The elder to the beloved Deus, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. You send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Arrive to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence amongst them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deed, which he does, praying against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but in God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all 
and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness that we know that our testimony is true. I have many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Amen. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Sami. Right? So the story is pretty clear. Diotrephes is a man, right, who is so protective and so defensive of his flock that he forgets the place of love. And especially in this culture where traveling preachers were not traveling because they were looking for a name for themselves. They were not traveling because it was easy to travel. They were traveling because they were sent by God. And their only recourse when they are sent by God is the hospitality of the church. And Diotrephes failed to receive them. In fact, not only did he fail to receive them, he excommunicated anybody in the church who has anything to do with them. So this is the kind of militancy that John was, was encouraging the lady in the second letter to have a bit of, you know, that there are some people that you draw a line against. But the thing with Diotrephes, and the letter doesn't tell us he was not a genuine believer or he was a fake one because the apostles were sending preachers to his church. So his church must have had strong foundations. And I'm sure if you look at our um, Christian context today, globally, you can see certain denominations or certain expressions of faith that hold tightly to this approach, right? Um, cutting off everybody else and not receiving the ministry of the brethren. We don't have time today, but it's important for us to know that each of us was saved into the context of the heavenly Jerusalem. That the definition of the church in its purest form is where two or three are gathered. That there is something about our faith that requires another. In fact, there are many things about your life that God will not reveal to you or to reveal to others. There's no amount of fasting and praying that you will do that will make those things yours. Somebody else in the body has to confirm those things. It will be given to them. So you can imagine when a church exists that cuts or a person exists that cuts itself out of genuine streams of the word of God, right? That church will be infantile. That church perhaps will, will be susceptible to witchcraft and to manipulation, which is what we see directly happening here where certain people are put out of the church just for relating to people that a senior pastor does not like. I feel like um, because we said a lot at the beginning, these two letters are pretty clear for us to see. And the main lesson for them is that as Christians, the glory that God wants to reveal through our lives is full of grace and truth. Yes, we are called to celebrate the grace of God. We are called to lean on the grace of God. We are called to draw on the grace of God. We are called to give the grace of God. Our lives are supposed to reflect a love, a tenderness, a care that makes the lost want to come into our homes, into the home of our hearts. And any kind of spirituality that makes us more distant, that makes us 
more 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 repulsive even to the basic people who are seeking christ that spirituality is not of god at the same time the strength of our faith lies in our ability to capture truth that's the most important skill like we always say the christian needs the ability to hear and the capacity to listen to receive the witness of the holy spirit and to know what is false and what is true to know what is good and what is evil, to know what is of God and what is not of God, to know who to relate with and who not to relate with, to know how far to relate and how far not to. Right? It is it is these two virtues that Jesus was filled with and the outcome was glory. And friends, my prayer for us is that our lives will provide the same platform for the Father. Yes, that he would display the many dimensions of his grace in our lives and that his truth will prosper in us that our hearts our lives will become a safe place for the truth of god that god will bear his heart fully upon us and through us because we are lovers of truth and that his glory will be revealed through us because of this in jesus name amen